Welcome to All The Things, a podcast for moms seeking an inspired life. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Chin. I am a writer and a coach, and my most passionate truth is that the world needs the real you. That's why I created this podcast, to discover all the things that make us who we are, because the better we understand ourselves, the more good we can do in the world. So let's do that together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I am really honored to have James Culver on the on the call on on the podcast on this episode with you. So, James, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you, Lisa. So, before we get started, I wanted to first acknowledge that I am podcasting and speaking from the unceded and traditional territories of the Nipmuc and Massachusetts tribes. And I share land acknowledgement before every episode. It's really important to me as I'm producing this and as I'm trying to expand on my work as an ally and activist, as someone who's knowledgeable or trying to become more knowledgeable in this area um, and to be kind of the best person I can be. Uh, this is just important for me. And I know that social justice and equality and equity is also very close to your heart, James, like this is something that I feel like we connected on. Um, and before we get started, James is a trainer and coach, right? So um, mm-hmm. I actually met him as a trainee in one of his courses that he was leading and I, he did such a fantastic job and I just wanted to stay in touch with him. So I kind of made it, and I don't usually do this, but I made it my, I made it a priority to kind of reach out and, and do the uncomfortable thing and say, hey, I'd like to have a conversation and and felt very um. Kind of, I mean, there is this like hierarchy, right? But like in awe of like the knowledge that you have and really just res- respectful of that. And I've just been really humbled by the fact that you wanted to, you know, you agreed to talk to me. So thank you for that. I'm you humbled know, that you asked. It's really, really, it doesn't happen very often, you know, that uh, people like the trainings that we do. And sometimes they're a snapshot in time and mm-hmm. people get busy in their everyday life afterward. And sometimes we make connections and quite often we don't until the next training comes along. So it's really quite an honor for me that you reached out and that we've got a lot in common in terms of just trying to figure out how we can live better, be better with others. I think the topic that we're going to talk about today is a big part of that, how we can make changes in the ways that we react to different situations and so on. So I think it's just a a part of the process of constantly trying to get better and improve. And and I really appreciate that we can take the time to talk about that. Mm. Thank you. And I'll finish your bio because I really do want to want to give the audience a good introduction, understanding of who you are, at least with the, with what, um, what we can share there and then really dive into this conversation. So you are a coach and trainer um, and you've been training for over 30 years. You're an American expat living in Germany since 2002 and has interacted with participants from around the world. So I'm in the U.S. and James is in Germany. Um, And topics ranging from change to the Miles Davis Guide to High Performing Teams is very intriguing. As a performance coach, James is focused on working with clients, preparing for or experiencing career changes. He's also a professional musician, songwriter, a writer, and storyteller who enjoys Latin dancing and long walks in the woods. (laughs) Well, the long walks in the woods kind of replace Latin dancing since I haven't had the opportunity to do that. We're hoping things will change come March here in Germany. We're looking forward to that. But yes, I, you know, we had to replace some things with others uh, during the pandemic, that's for sure. Those are two very different things, though. How do they provide you the same or do they just end up providing you different uh, benefits? Different benefits. That it, one gets the body moving, so that's, that is the same. But there's something about walking in the woods with someone who knows you well. I mean, we've I've got a standing uh, weekend walk, extended walk date with uh, my best friend. And so she and I 
have known each other for over 20 years. She knows me mm. better than anybody else, I think. And so just having someone you can relate to as a person with no screen between you is really important. And it really helped me to, to maintain, I think, my sanity throughout my time in, uh, in front of the camera sphere. Because basically during the pandemic, I have been in front of a camera most of the time. My interaction with most people is through a virtual platform. And it's, it's really important, even for someone who calls himself an introvert, it's really important to have real contact with a real human being from time to time. Yeah, because at the end of the day, even if we're introvert or extrovert, we're human and touch yeah. and presence and whatnot is very important to our survival. Absolutely. And for me, just to say things out loud versus having them run around in my head made a big difference in terms of assessing where do I think I am with certain decisions that need to be made, certain situations that have happened. It's, it's a regular chance to debrief my life with mm -hmm. someone who can push back where necessary or detect that maybe there's something else underneath what I'm saying. And, and that's just been very, very powerful. Now, with Latin dancing, there's, there's the music. That's always great. And there's a connection there, too. It's just a different kind of connection. And that's one that I've enjoyed over the years as well. Wonderful. As I was developing this season and when the theme of unlearning came to me, I thought, oh, I really want to ask James. Kind of scared to because I didn't know if you'd accept. Um, but and I'm trying to remove this word, but from my category. And as a trainer, you, you are literally helping people unlearn. Like there is, that is what your job is as a coach and a trainer. And being in your course, I could feel that unlearning kind of happening in the process. And that was what was made it really powerful was it wasn't just a, almost a regurgitation or just straight PowerPoint slides. It really got into patterns and then really reframing them and rewiring them in a sense. Um, so that said, I'll stop talking and let you, I would love to hear from you, kind of like, how would you define unlearning? I'd love for the listener to learn a bit more about your perspective on that. I think about unlearning as doing things differently and doing different things, especially in response to particular triggers that have become quite normal for us to respond in a certain way that isn't necessarily working for us in all of the situations that we face. One of the things that has been a part of my career is working with adults primarily. There was one year when I taught kids English when I first moved to Germany. I don't know if I'll ever do that again, but, but in terms of the majority of my career has been spent working with adults. And one thing that I realized early on is that we are not blank slates when we come to training as adults, no matter what the topic is. Even if it's a more hard skill that it's perhaps doing some audit training might be when I'm teaching people how to investigate or how to interview and so on, those things might be more hard social skills. But there are these other social skills that we use far more frequently that we call them, unfortunately, soft skills, but they're very difficult often to change and especially to change our approach to them because they are so normal. And when I say normal, in this case, we have triggers and we have responses that we've done for years, so much so that the responses that we have become automatic. They become reactions. And when we're in a state of trigger, then reaction, I think this is where the term unlearning comes into play for people, because there's this sense that I need to be able to do something differently than I already do 
but because there's no space between the trigger and reaction, I feel that I need to unlearn what I typically do in this situation in order to learn to do something else. For me, the, the idea of removing something that you've learned is not as useful as the more positive side, the idea of inserting something in that process. For example, uh, when we think about cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy and looking at the behavior chain that they often talk about within that framework, there are four steps in the behavior chain. So first there's a trigger, and then there is a thought. In really good cases, there's a thought, followed by an action, and then after the action, there's a consequence. So the behavior chain has an interruption between trigger and action, and that's thought. Sometimes when we think about unlearning, it's actually to insert thought between trigger and action. And the point with that is finding different techniques for people to actually say, okay, this trigger is something that I've observed regularly, and I, without thinking about it, I might do this or that. I don't like my outcomes. I don't like my consequences when I do that. And I want different consequences. So what do I need to do? I need new actions. So how do I get to new actions? I need new thoughts. I need new ways of assessing that trigger, looking at my own internal resources, and being able to bring that to bear in this situation. And there are different things that Sometimes we we need to do in order to make space for thought between trigger and action. And one of the things that we do in training, and I really appreciate that that you appreciated what we were attempting to do, is to give you a chance and to give people, uh, participants, a chance to be in a safe environment where they can observe their triggers see how they typically react to them in that situation, then once that action is taken to think about the consequences, and that's where debriefing comes into play or or reviewing what's happened, how it happened, what I did, and then to take that review process as a part of the thinking process for next time. So when I have this trigger, I recognize Yeah, I normally do this, but in this case, I do have other options, and I can do something else. So let me think about it. Take a beat before I go into the normal action and see what other actions are available to me. If we can do that, then we open possibilities, and that's a path to individual change. It's a path to social change because as, as groups of people, we go from trigger to reaction too. And sometimes it can be even more difficult to break the chain of trigger to reaction when we're in groups of people where we're reinforcing those reactions for each other. So part of this process is to expand possibilities to have choices and different actions leading to different consequences that will make a difference for all of us. And as, as the listeners taking this in, you know, the thought that comes to me is like, can, can you give an example of that sequence? Because the, there's, this may be the first time that someone has heard the word trigger in this context. So I think mm-hmm. an example or a couple even would be really helpful. This is, uh, I'll be a bit, a bit vulnerable as I give you this example. And I, I don't feel like I'm alone in this. When I uh, was at home in the U.S. over the winter break in mid-January, I realized how much weight I had gained in the last two years 
during the pandemic. I, I, my clothes basically fit. Maybe, you know, it was a little bit of, of kind of sucking in air to, to button <laughs> the pants or so <laughs> before. But I thought, yeah, they still basically fit. It's okay. It's no problem. And then I stepped on a scale and shocked myself. And, and I really had uh, gone past a number I never thought I would, would see. It just monitoring my weight was something I just really didn't have to do for, for most of my life. And th- thinking about how did I get here? Mm. What were the patterns? What was my relationship to eating during the pandemic as well as not participating in, in all of the activities like playing music regularly, which is a physical activity for me as a percussionist, or dancing uh, typically two or three times a week, not having that, not replacing that with other activities, working from home, which meant working more for me because it was easy to do. You know, I, it's, it's like 10 seconds from my bedroom to my office. So it's quite easy to to be in front of the computer, interact with people, and then after my training day would, would end, I would go to the refrigerator and look for something quick. So typically the trigger was training day is over. Now I'm hungry. Let me get something. So, so that's the trigger. I'm hungry and I don't have a lot of time in my own mind. I want something fast. And quite often I would go into the freezer, get a frozen pizza add some extra things to it so it wasn't a basic frozen pizza. It actually made it kind of nice and very many more calories by what I added to it. And then, you know, popping in the oven 15 minutes later, I was in front of the TV set eating pizza without thinking. Mm. wasn't even in my mind. So you have this trigger. I've worked all day. I've worked several hours. I've trained. I've interacted with people virtually. I'm a bit tired. I'm hungry. Um, I need something to eat and I want it quick. I want it to be quick. The reaction to that is pop a pizza in the oven. And I didn't even think about the consequence. You know, there, that was an action And the consequence comes much later when I think about, okay, I'm not moving as as easily, but okay, I haven't been dancing. And I I would just kind of justify away the consequences that I saw without connecting those consequences to the reaction that was leading to them. So what has changed, and especially as I change my relationship to food since that time and have been uh, working pretty diligently with a program since I've been back in, in mid January and it's having positive, a positive impact. I see different consequences is actually to be more conscious about that trigger. I'm hungry to action, cooking something, preparing something and eating something consciously. Now, there's a thought between that. And sometimes that thought needs to be generated before the trigger happens. Mm. So soup is a lot less fattening, <laughs> a lot less fewer calories than a pizza. Soup takes very little time to heat up. So instead of going to the supermarket, which is just across the street from me. I have two that are within five minutes. It's very, very nice European life. So I just have to walk across the street to grab something. Now it's instead of buying those pizzas in advance, knowing that I'm going to have this trigger of hunger, grab some soup or grab things that you can put into a soup and make it very quickly and do it yourself. And that process has opened possibilities for me. I am not limited to what's in the refrigerator because I've thought about it before the trigger happened. 
Does that make sense? It does make sense. And at the same time, I'm also thinking about how quickly you said you went from trigger to action. You went from, I'm hungry, I'm going to the fridge, I'm taking it out, putting, you know, doing all those things. And that thought, I mean, the way that I see it, I feel like you probably have years of experience of inserting thought between trigger and action. But how does someone actually do that? And you mentioned there, there are various techniques. And as I'm thinking, you know, the how quickly that happens, it's pretty hard to inject a thought into there. So one of it, one of those things could be like, like you said, look at it beforehand, think about it, kind of prepare. But what can someone do when they notice it? And, and maybe it's unpredictable and they can't really prepare for it. Let's just say those assumptions are correct. What can we do? Well, I would put a question mark about those assumptions. We'll go back to that <laughs> in a bit because I, I do think there are common triggers and research in the area of neuroscience is helping us recognize some common triggers. So I, I will get to that. So let's stick a pin in that, that concept of can we prepare for triggers? I think there's no question that we can. Um, another big part of, okay, how do we get into this frame of being able to insert thoughts? One big thing is to be present. One of the, the, in preparing for this, this conversation, was looking at some research that was done by Killingsworth and Gilbert, and it showed up in the Science Magazine, and uh, they were talking about the wandering mind, the wandering mind. And in this research, they found that 47% of our time was thinking about the past, the future, or something else, but not the present. And for me, the link between trigger and reaction and mindfulness or being present is when we are not present, it's a lot easier just to react because we're not in a place to be present with a thought about the trigger. So one of the first things I think that, that can matter or make a difference is to be present when a trigger happens, to be present, to understand that there is space for thought about options in that time. If we're not focused on it, it's a lot easier to react and then kind of complain about it afterwards because we recognize that what we did in response to that trigger may not have been ideal from a consequence perspective. And yeah, we can blame ourselves we can say, I know better, I know better, I didn't do better, but I know better, and go through that whole process of asking ourselves, why didn't I, and, and so on and so on. And I, I've never found that to be very useful as a trainer or a coach to focus on the past. Again, then we're back in that 47% again. What I would like to think about is what can I do next time? What are my options for the next time? There certainly is a place for people who um, are stuck. And maybe they're in a place where it's, they're not in a healthy frame of mind. And it's very important then to work with professionals that can help people get unstuck. For a lot of us, the process is more about being present and using that presence to expand options in responses to what's going on around us. And just to think about three options, and I love three, the rule of three, because it's not this or that. And sometimes thinking about that third option expands what is possible for us. So, and we can hold three options in our mind at once. So, this idea of being able to think of three options can be very, very powerful in response to a trigger. Does that help a bit? Yes. 
Absolutely. And I think that this idea of being present also means we are obviously in the moment, but I also think that it's slower in the moment. And so when you're present and you get triggered, you have a trigger happen or you get triggered. And in those times you immediately move to reaction, you're slower in general. So then you have the time to observe what's happening and then can make a choice. Absolutely. For me, breathing is important. Well, it's always important. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's a good thing. To take a moment to breathe, simply breathe, can make a difference. One of the Um, technique set that we've learned over the years is the mindful pause. And I think everybody can do this in preparation for meetings or conversations that could be triggering conversations or have the potential to trigger us. We know sometimes going into certain conversations or situations that there's a potential in that situation to be triggered. I think If we were to look back on our lives and think about, are there some common situations that happen for me that lead to certain reactions that I'm not so happy with? I think we could all come up with a list of of those kinds of situations. When we know we're going into them, taking a moment, just a moment, it could be 15 seconds to breathe. And then ask ourselves, after going through a 15-second breathing exercise, ask ourselves, what do we want to bring into this situation that we're about to face? What do we want to bring into this meeting? In some cases, I might say what I want to bring into this meeting is patience and care. And it's kind of like putting that on my dashboard, my mental dashboard. I want to bring patience and care into this conversation. That's what success looks like for me in this conversation, to bring in patience and care. And that helps me to regulate my reactions to triggers because in advance, I've put the thought of what I want to show in my mind. And it's a lot easier then to call to my best self, to call to that which I've already committed in a way to bringing into this conversation. And that's powerful, this idea of saying, this is what I want to bring into it. We don't have to be perfect. We might not always bring in patience and care when we put that on the screen. And yet we have a better chance of doing it because we have put it on the screen prior to the event. So that's a very powerful thing for me, this idea in advance, putting myself in a position to be my best self, not just reacting in a way that I may regret later or not feel positive about later. Mm -hmm. So in moments or in times when we have kind of a before to a possible trigger, we can take a step and just kind of put certain things on the dashboard and prepare. What about, and you said that, you know, it's arguable that you can't prepare for any situation. So how would you, how would you speak to the moments where things happen and, you know, and then it, all, all, all the things happen afterwards and you don't feel like you can prepare for them. So like, I don't know if there's an example, I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, someone cuts you off in the car, right? That's a great like that. example, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> especially for me driving here in Germany. I think there's a different approach to driving here. Uh, something to do with having no speed limit in some, some places, <laughs> but this, this idea of being cut off and having an emotional reaction. That happens. 
I know it's going to happen. You know, springtime is coming. And in Germany, when springtime comes then people with their very nice cars are out showing what those cars can do quite often. And in that process, I know someone's going to cut me off. Sometimes someone's going to do something I don't agree with, and I'm going to have to react to that. So there's first the, the kind of reaction to avoid an accident. That's one. Then there's the emotional reaction. That person cut me off. And I'm angry when that happens. But that anger doesn't have to lead to a set of other behaviors that would be escalating behaviors, for mm -hmm. example. I can have other thoughts to think about, yes, it happened. Did the person mean to do it? Does it really matter? Are you okay? Is everything okay? Let them pass. Let them go do what they need to do. Um, wish them well and hope that they won't <laughs> cause an accident for someone else later down the road. But ultimately, the, the anger can be managed. I can manage my anger. I don't have to be a prisoner to my anger. I can treat my anger as a second trigger. Hmm. So when I'm angry, what can I do to manage my anger? So it's almost like you can prepare for the emotion. You can't prepare for the scenario, but you can prepare for how you feel at that moment in time. Well, you're going to feel something, and, sure. and you can do something. If we treat that feeling as a trigger, we can then think about it and think about an action. Because it, just because we're angry doesn't mean that I have to, you know, make a hand gesture that is illegal here. <laughs> to to really? driving. Yes, it is. Because we recognize here that within driving, uh, the stress of driving, that hand gesture leads to reactions and that leads to escalation and, and all kinds of problems. So that is a provocation mm. on the road to do that. Absolutely. And it's illegal. It's almost like the law has identified the trigger and has placed something. <laughs> you know, laws are always written in the rearview mirror, meaning that they are in response to things. So there's no question that it happened many times before enough for people to say, yeah, okay, the, the stink finger, as we call it here in Germany, is, is certainly not worth... Um, worth allowing in this kind of situation where people have, you know, tons of steel in, in between them and uh, can lead to very, very disastrous consequences. So, you know, one of the things that I really like in Germany, and I've been in uh, car accidents, you know, fender benders here or there, is when they happen, typically people are very relaxed after they've happened, we typically have this kind of, did you see me? But then in the second thought is, of course he didn't. This, this wasn't intentional. So very rarely do I see people involved in shouting matches. I've never been in one after an accident. People might have that initial reaction of, hey, what, why did you stop? short or what happened and, and there's a car in front of me or you know i'm driving out of a parking lot and someone backs into me that person obviously didn't see me they didn't do it on purpose they don't know who i am and their car was damaged too so this this idea of that's a major trigger but it doesn't have to lead to a negative action and, and what I see people tend to do is go through a ritual. So, okay, let's take pictures. Is this something we need to call the police about? Let's exchange information. The insurance companies are very prompt in terms of um, getting the information shared where it needs to and so on. And we just go about our day afterward. You know? And so, yes, I still have this kind of adrenaline rush from having the unexpected take place. But there's a frame 
of actions that leads to positive consequences. I get to move on. That person gets to move on. We exchange information we need. Things get fixed, and they get fixed expediently. And that I find to be a very powerful frame, this idea that a trigger does not have to lead to a specific reaction. We can practice what we're doing in re response to different things. And the, the question about triggers, can we kind of predict them? And I've been working with the work of Dr. David Rock, who's a neuroscientist. A lot of people know his work with the Neuroleadership Institute. And in um, his book, which I think is written back in 2009, it's The Brain at Work, he was thinking about triggers, in essence. What are some of the things that we, we deal with at work that are, are common triggers based on the neuroscientific research? And his, his goal is to bring neuroscience into layman's terms so all of us can benefit from what we are learning about the brain. And he came up with a model that's called the SCARF model. And we can look at the SCARF model, S-C-A-R-F, as a framework for common triggers. And what we mean by that is in a, in a situation happens, our brain is either attracted to the situation or wants to move away from the situation. And there are five areas of, of triggers that he can collect it. So in SCARF, the S stands for status. Has someone said or done something that we feel is inappropriate to the status we see for ourselves? People who have children know this. If you have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and you talk to the six-year-old the same way you talk to the three-year-old, you have a status problem on your hands because the six-year-old will remind you, hey, I'm not a baby anymore. You don't need to talk to me that way. And that is a, a reaction, a trigger that's sponsored by the idea that I have earned something here. We see it sometimes with titles. Okay, I'm the senior trainer in the room. So as the senior trainer in the room, I expect to have the last word in, in the, the training room. Okay, if someone else takes the last word, I might feel that they have diminished my sense of status. And that is a common trigger. So that's the first one. The second one is certainty. And, and we all know the issue of certainty because we are living in such an uncertain time. We want to be able to accurately predict what is going to happen for us. The more we can predict what is going to happen, the easier it is for us to plan, the easier it is for us to chart a course because we kind of know what's going to happen in front of us. We are all living in a very uncertain time with the pandemic. And I think a lot of the reactions that we're seeing are reactions to the trigger of uncertainty. So that's the S, that's the C. The A stands for autonomy. And this freedom to do what we know we can do without having to ask for permission, without having to have someone check our work is something that's very, very important to many of us. <laughs> Again, I'm laughing. Yeah. I'm laughing because I'm literally working through something like that right now. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very timely. So, so, and, and it's a trigger, you know, someone, says, I, I need to check your work. When we know that we produce a very high quality level of work, then there can be that feeling that, hey, you know, I'm not a junior anymore. I, I've earned the right to be able to interact directly with a client or earn the, 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 the right to 
have a say in how I organize my own work. Many people in this time of working from home have been given far more autonomy than they've had in the past. And as we start to think about going back into the office, one of the biggest challenges is people kind of taking some of that autonomy back in the course of managing others. And this is one of the major issues that is coming up with hybrid work or um, a full-time return to the office is can we allow people to continue to have the autonomy that they had? For example, if I want to work till 10 o'clock at night and take a two-hour break in, in the middle of the day, that's my right as long as I get the work in on time. Now, if I'm working essentially office hours from nine till six, there's a certain expectation that things get done within that frame. That's taking some autonomy away from us. And that's, that's a tough one to, to try, try to get around sometimes. So status, certainty, autonomy. The, la the next one is relatedness. And this is our feelings for relationships to other people. Trust is a major piece of relatedness. Who do I trust? Who trusts me? What kinds of connections do I have? Team is far more than should be, far more than the sum of its parts. And that, that happens because of relationship. What can we share with each other that is vulnerable? Like, I'm just thinking out loud here. This is not done, but I, I want to share what I'm thinking right now. What do you think? Opening ourselves up to being corrected by other people or to hear other perspectives. The safety that we need, and I love this concept of psychological safety, the safety to be who we are, to have a learning environment, to contribute fully to that environment and appropriately to that environment, and to change the status quo. All of that is about creating the safety that allows us to be more with other people than we are by ourselves. And that's the kind of upside to relatedness. If there's a threat to relatedness being excluded, for example, being pigeonholed, Hey, James, you're just a trainer. So I just want you to comment on training, not on organizational development, for example. So when we, we think about our contributions being reduced, our relationship being reduced, that can be a trigger for us. And the last one is fairness. And fairness is a huge issue for many of us. When we perceive that we're being treated unfairly, that's a major trigger. One of the things that I think about with the great resignation and where is this coming from, I think the SCARF model is very informative when we think about what is changing for people in their relationship to, the, to work, their basic relationship to work. And I think what we found is many people are just not willing to compromise as much today as they were in the past for situations that push them out of a comfort zone in the areas of status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. If I feel like I'm being treated unfairly, that is the kind of trigger that helps people to, I think, make conclusions, to come to conclusions about their work environment. If I feel that it is unfair here, that conclusion basically leads to not being here anymore. Because am I going to change the framework that leads to being treated or having the sense that I'm being treated unfairly? A lot of people are not going to invest their time and energy in, into that when it's a lot easier to leave. So, again, when thinking about triggers, there are certain things we can prepare for. We, we know that 
there are certain things that happen to us that can lead to certain reactions or have led to certain reactions. And I think we can, can think about that. How do we want to have a conversation with people to bring up the, these kinds of situations so we can find different options? That's really important. When you said that it could be applied to the great resignation, I, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking it could be applied to probably anything. I'm thinking parenting specifically because you brought up a couple examples around kids and it's, yes, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness, like threat of, you know, not belonging in the family, like all of that. Those are triggers for our children too. So it's just really fascinating how, you know, people are people and this, these frameworks can be applied across the board. It's just if you choose to do so. I find the the idea, again, getting back to the topic of unlearning, we're really trying to do things differently. So if we focus on that, how can we be in a situation that we faced before and do something that we typically wouldn't do in that situation to lead to different consequences that we, we want to have? That kind of focus, what's going to help us do that is, is really the, the kind of thing that I think we can all work on, we can all develop uh, for ourselves. There are some techniques that we've, we've learned from coaching and uh, from working with people in, psych, in psychology, this idea of naming your trigger is, is very powerful. Monitoring yourself for kind of a hyper reaction to things that are happening, to really think about being your best, the self-care. So another thing, instead of just thinking about how to prepare for a situation, it's are we at our best before we go into a situation? If I am tired going into a potentially triggering situation, I am not at my best in terms of having the energy to think my way through that situation. And by not being at my best, I may be in a situation where I'm predestined to react. So taking care of ourselves is incredibly important in terms of giving ourselves options in ways to deal with or think through the triggers that we encounter. I had I don't know if I've ever heard it kind of stated in that way, but it makes, I mean, it makes sense that that's what people say. It makes me think of how since the start of this year, I have tried to do about like 20 minutes of something, yoga or breath work or something like that. And the reaction or lack thereof that I have to my children has been very apparent. Mm. And even at, even at work where I would have been way more stressed it was dialed down mm. and it's just, and it doesn't take a lot of time. I mean, I think that that's something that the sense of urgency all the time that we have, I mean, in, in, I think in the worldwide culture uh, that takes us away from that present moment and takes us away from being mindful about what we're doing. And then in turn takes us away from being able to interrupt the trigger and action uh, sequence. Absolutely. I'm smiling here because I, I think about all of those situations where I wasn't at my best and what led to that. So kind of thinking about debriefing and, and that's kind of, that can be important and that's one level of debriefing. And, and one of the things that came to mind is to focus on that thinking peace. So we can prepare, we can have this self-care, we can be at our best before the trigger, but there's level of thought after the trigger to Mm. think about. I went back to a book that for me was incredibly important, especially as a a military leader. That's another part of my background. A long time ago, I was in the military. And 
wanting to be the best leader I could be, I took this book around with me everywhere. And it's The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge from MIT. And he talks about mental models. And the mental models that we carry around are these ingrained assumptions and generalizations and images that influence the way we understand ourselves, the world around us, and the actions that we take. So uh, some of our reactions are tied to patterns of thought about a trigger. What does this trigger mean? And one of the ways to change mental models, and I think this is part of unlearning, is to be able to deploy different mental models in response to the same trigger or similar trigger. Singha talked about um, three major patterns of thinking. And the first one is event level thinking. And that's basically having a trigger and an action and a consequence. And the thought then is who did what to whom. It's kind of like uh, parents seeing this, you go into your child, children are having an argument or something went wrong, you know it, you see the aftermath, and the first thing is, who did what to whom? How did this situation get this way? That's event level. And that level helps us to deal with what is superficial. And it's often the idea around power, you know, this reward, punishment, and so on. All of these things come through this kind of event level thinking. So if we're in this event level thinking, it will be difficult to get to other options because essentially we're just looking at an image of a causal relationship. And that can be a straight line to a particular reaction or action. So that's one level. It's reactive, this event level thinking. Then there's the patterns of behavior, which is a, a deeper level. Now we're not just looking at the event. We're looking at what are the long-term consequences of these patterns of behavior if they continue. And that's powerful, certainly. If a particular pattern presents itself, then we can be in the business of predicting where it's going to go and maybe interrupting that pattern as it presents itself. But what if the pattern presents itself differently? And the challenge then is to get beyond the pattern. And that's where systems comes in. And this is a system structure. And the question for a system structure or approach is to think about what causes the pattern of behavior. And once we get there, when we can start to think about what are the causes of this pattern of behavior, now we're almost at the interest level. We're at the level where the playing field is wide open for different ways to interrupt or to inspire new patterns of behavior in response to the structures that we see. So if we focus in on, well, we have the trigger, we have thought, we have action and consequence, focusing in on that thought area, we can get to the point of seeing the systems that influence how we see the event, the mental models that we use. That can lead to a wide range of, of options, including maybe uh, avoiding the situation altogether, finding a countermeasure that we can put in place that prevents that pattern of behavior from ever starting. I don't go to the supermarket and buy frozen pizzas anymore. 
So when I go into the refrigerator, there is no frozen pizza there for me to pop in the oven. I can interrupt that pattern of behavior. So my mind, as you were going through this, I, I had a feeling it would end up with systems. And then it makes me think about culturally, how do we, how do we change cultures? I mean, within the workplaces, like in microculture, I'm talking societally and, um, and nationally. And you went and you said, you know, the experience in Germany, it being in a car crash was, is very different than if you were in, or a car accident would be very different than if you were in the U.S., or at least that's my assumption of what you said. But I, I can only, I'm, I'm saying this anecdotally because I'm just one person. My sure. experience here has been much more relaxed yes. in general. I, unfortunately, I've had accidents both in the U.S. and in Germany. Uh, but in, in the, the general way that I see people approaching accidents, not just my own, just looking at the body language of people who have had an accident or seeing how they react to it, there is from my view, some, when we talk about culture, this idea of what are the patterns of behavior that are seen as acceptable or unacceptable within a defined group. So here, I see that it is far more acceptable to behave following an accident in a way that's focused on solutions. How do we make this work? How do we make sure people are safe? How do we exchange the information that we need so we can both move on and get our cars fixed eventually. If we focus on who's at fault, the anger that we could have, the surprise, the shock of the situation, all of that, focusing on those things aren't getting us any closer to having the information that we need to get on with our lives. So, from a cultural perspective, and, and culture is, is a major um, thought or area of thought for me, how do we change culture is, is a key question. Culture changes all the time, and it often changes as a reaction, in my experience. The If we kind of take the theme of what we talked about so far today, one of the things that is helpful for us is to insert thought, collective thought, between trigger and action. And quite often when we think about culture, and I'm, I'm a constructivist if I can have a label for, for culture, meaning that we build our cultures together. I'm not the kind of person who says, you know, these people are over here and these people are over here. When I tell stories about Germany, they're my experiences. I think about culture as tendency, but they're also changing. They're evolving. Germany is not what Germany was you know, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, and so on. There was, you know, 200 years ago, there wasn't in Germany, per se. So um, this idea of the changes that go on in our external environments, the changes in our relationships lead to agreements that we have, and the long-term persistence of those agreements kind of helps them to go deeper into basic assumptions. And this, this idea of how do we manage different sets of basics, basic assumptions with each other, that is one of our major challenges today, is that we are seeing basic assumptions that are different about how we should live together, what choices should people have or not have within a society that is unified, unfortunately, more by geographic designation in some cases than in others, how can we build beyond 
I'm in this community only because I live in a specific area to I am in this community because it brings benefits to me. I bring benefits to you. We are better because we are here. We have more possibilities because we are here than if we were someplace else because we have built something together that's meaningful for us. That process of building to to be able to insert the kind of community processes where we can say, let's think together here. Let's look and expand our options. There are going to be times when we have to agree to disagree. And yet, I think that if we go to what are our interests, we have so many interests in common that just go unexplored. And that means that the options that we do generate are not satisfying to all of our parties because we're not exploring the interests that we have in common. That's one of our, our challenges culturally, is to be able to find ways to remind ourselves of the common interests that we have and use those common interests as a springboard for generating options that will make our community meaningful for us as individuals. That's beautiful. And I know that there's a whole lot of other information behind that that you can share, but I won't pick your brain for the next five hours. <laughs> it just has to be another conversation another day because I, I, and you know that I am very interested in generating change on a community level. And it's something that I'm just grateful that you shared that because I think that that's really important. And it's a really good reminder that we are people connecting with people. We need to be with one another. We need to find these commonalities. We need to understand one another. And so I really appreciate that. And I very much appreciate your being here. I'd, you know, when I think about the work that you've done for as a trainer specifically and having been part of so much unlearning and, uh, for so many people and probably have seen a lot of patterns and a lot of ways that has presented itself. Uh, I love to just give you an opportunity to share kind of a parting thought with the listener. Um, whatever may be coming to you is, would be great. The most powerful thing I've learned as a trainer was probably very early on in a process where I was uh, asked to work with people who are returning to school after taking a break. So they were actually wanting to go to a community college but needed to complete their GED. And they were adults coming back into a more formal academic environment with all of the challenges that they remembered from being in school before where they didn't finish successfully. and. In preparing for that class, and I still remember it distinctly, how satisfying it was for people to see possibilities for themselves after going through this course, as opposed to what they may have thought going into the course. There was um, a phrase that I learned from a trainer, and unfortunately I've forgotten uh, his name. Is a person, he had put out a, a VHS about the, uh, wisdom for life. And the most important thing that I got from what he said was, like, love, and forgive yourself. When we think about unlearning and being in a position to be different, to be better, to know better, and then to, to do better, and to paraphrase uh, Maya Angelou, this idea of, doing that and being on this journey of continuous improvement as human beings, we are not going to meet our own standards all the time. Mm. It is a process. When we like ourselves, then we can be in a position to recognize our own humanity and notice that, yes, I made a mistake, and I will do better next time. I, I'm really going to try to take a look at not only what led to this, but what are some of the systems or patterns of thought that 
have led to this. And, and maybe I can change that process for myself. It starts with, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I can, I can do better. That's the liking part. Loving is, is, is deeper than that. It's, it's more to this, this point of really valuing our ability to contribute to others in positive ways on this planet. That there is a deeper sense of connection that we can have with ourselves that will allow a deeper connection with others. And, of course, to forgive. It's very difficult to be forgiving of others when we cannot forgive ourselves. Sometimes these patterns that are recurring happen because we get stuck in not forgiving ourselves, in blaming ourselves, looking at the negatives and not looking at the options. So if we can like, love, and forgive ourselves, I think it can lead to the having the energy, the interest, the possibility to see a trigger, think, act in different ways, leading to consequences that will be better for us and our neighbors. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very um, welcome. One last thing is, can you, if the audience or the listener wants to get in touch with you, can you share different ways of doing so and learning more about your work? Absolutely. So should I uh, send that to you to put on? You, I will certainly ask for that, but some okay, people great. may not well, actually, yeah. Sure. Uh, it's a lot to, to put. It's, it's not easy. Well, there's J, James dot culver c-u-l-v-e-r-j-r all one word at symbol gmail.com so james dot culver j-r at symbol gmail.com that's probably the best way to to get a hold of me especially if we're talking about six to nine hours <laughs> time difference between the u.s and germany yeah. Well, thank you again. It's really just been, it always is. And, and I'm, it was very um, selfish for me to say, I just want to record one of the times we talked together so I can reference <laughs> it. So thank you again and again for being here. My pleasure. Really uh, very, very nice. And, and it was uh, more than flattering to be asked to do this. I really appreciate that you asked. And, and I look forward to um, seeing where our connection leads. I think there's so much for me to learn from you. I mean, I'm, I'll never be a mother. And I think you're, you're managing that brilliantly. There's a lot to learn through that process. So thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in today. Living an inspired life is a worthy endeavor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Be sure to subscribe in your preferred podcast player for future real conversations. And if any part of this episode made you think of a friend, let them know that they aren't alone in their journey and share all the things with them. If you'd like to stay in touch, hop on over to lisaforreal.com and sign up for my daily blogs or find me on Instagram at Reclaiming Motherhood. See you next time.